Hey folks, listen up. I want to tell you about this amazing service called OneRep. OneRep removes your private information from Google and more than 150 people search sites. If you've ever gone through the painstaking task of requesting for those people search sites like PeopleFinder to remove your information, then you know firsthand how sucky that is. And if you haven't done it before, then you're leaving your privacy up for grabs. Herein enters OneRep. OneRep will do all the heavy lifting for you so that you never have to bother sending in any letters of request or submitting a form online. They even send you a detailed report every month that tells you exactly how many sites your information has been found on, how many sites it has been removed from, and how many more are left to go. And here's the best part for me. You can even protect your family of up to six people by choosing OneRep's family plan. This is what I use to protect my family's privacy and I could not be happier. So I want to extend this offer for you to try OneRep for yourself and get up to 60% off. You heard that right. I said 60%, not five, not 10, but 60. Take advantage of this discount and click on the link in the show notes to start securing your privacy today. Houston, Texas, home of the Queen Bee Beyonce herself and mouth-watering barbecue. This bustling southern city is home to almost two and a half million people where its residents speak more than 140 different languages. Houston is a city that has a very young population, with 22% of the city's residents being between the ages of 5 and 19. The city is known for being one of great economic value, especially to people from expensive states like California. In fact, in 2021, Houston was the leading city in Texas for Californians looking to relocate. Between the affordable housing market, plenty of jobs, and no state income tax, it's easy to see why folks move from more expensive cities in pursuit of a better quality of life. But just like with everything else, Houston has an underbelly, and it consists of poverty, violence, and human trafficking. More than 20% of the city's residents live below the poverty line, which can often lead to loads of violent crime in affected communities. One of Houston's major sources of criminal activity is human trafficking. The city is not just a place with high rates of trafficking. No, Houston is a human trafficking hub, and Black women and girls are especially vulnerable. According to a study backed by the Congressional Black Caucus Foundation, Black girls are more likely to be sex trafficked at a younger age compared to other racial groups. The FBI also found that 40% of all trafficked persons are Black women, and to make these findings even worse, according to the Urban Institute, traffickers seem to believe they will receive less prison time or more lenient consequences if found to have trafficked a Black woman or girl versus having trafficked a white woman or girl. Houston is in crisis, and the Department of Justice declared Houston to be among the worst areas of human trafficking in the nation, so you can only imagine just how bad it is on the ground for Black women and Black girls. 
Today's episode features the disturbing disappearance of a beautiful young California woman who visited Houston from San Diego, but vanished almost without a trace. Her family is looking tirelessly for her, and they vowed that they won't rest until she's found. I'm Renetta Rideout, and this is Massage Noir Murder. On April 13, 2022, Felicia Marie Johnson left her SoCal Beach City, San Diego to enjoy the offerings of popular Houston, Texas. She had plans to continue celebrating her 24th birthday. While to piece together from various news articles, Felicia checked into a hotel located in the popular Texas Medical Center area, a location packed with hotels and restaurants. Now, from most of the articles I've read and interviews I've watched, I think Felicia was alone, but I did hear mention once that there might have been a family member or a friend, perhaps, that was with her. Since I'm not sure, I'm going to assume that Alicia stayed at the hotel by herself. On the night of April 15th, Felicia got herself all dolled up and prepared to shoot her shot at Cover Girls, a popular but controversial gentleman's club located on West Little York Road. Now, Felicia is a smart young woman, and I believe she took the proper precautions to ensure she was in touch with her family in Houston and in California while she was in Houston visiting. One way she stayed connected was by having her phone enabled for tracking through an app. According to her aunt, Felicia shared her location with family and friends to make sure everyone knew where she was. This precaution was so smart and would ultimately become a very important detail later on. Anyway, sometime on Friday night, an Uber driver picked Felicia up and took her to CoverGirls. Oddly enough, I haven't read much that provides the time exactly Felicia left the hotel, but I did hear mention once that it was around 10 p.m., but this is not something I could confirm, so don't hang your hat on it. However, regardless of the time, her family knew exactly where she was going and where she should have been. Several hours later, and no one, friend or family, had heard from Felicia including her dad, Kevin Johnson. Kevin immediately knew something was terribly wrong. Felicia had always been very responsible and communicative with her family. She would never just stop responding or fail to check in. So he hopped on a plane from California and was in Houston 12 hours later on April 16th. Listen, I need to take a second to commend the absolute organization and focus of Felicia's entire support system. They mobilized quickly and efficiently, so by the time Kevin had boots on the ground in Houston, he had a private investigator and the leader of the new Black Panther Nation, Quanell X, behind him. 
His sister LaTanya in California organized a Facebook group that I am so happy to say has not devolved into what happened with groups for Alexis Ware. But in an unfortunate side note, I have been informed that Ratchet TV has started harassing Kevin just like he did Alexis's mom. I'm not going to say more, but yeah, that's also happening. Anyway, Quanell X spread the word throughout the community that Felicia was missing while the PI began his investigation. Of course, Kevin's first course of action was to officially report Felicia missing, but lo and behold, he was given the usual song and dance that she's an adult and can choose to break contact at any time, blah, blah, blah. So let's not jump the gun and say she's missing. Well, obviously that response didn't bode well with Kevin, but again, he and his family were so organized, their own investigation was already underway. The family's investigation led the PI to the nightclub's doorstep, where he hoped to get some answers. Upon arrival, the club initially didn't want to talk or cooperate, and even went so far as to deny that Felicia was ever there. Then the manager didn't want to speak to the PI, but thankfully he didn't give up and kept persisting with questions. And unbeknownst to the club, the PI was recording everything for the family's records and all of the denials that Felicia was ever there, the runaround, the lack of cooperation and discriminatory comments were recorded for the Johnsons to hear later. Anyway, finally the manager made himself available. I guess he figured it was easier to go ahead and talk to the investigator, and when he started talking, what he said threw up a major red flag. According to the club manager, Felicia called an Uber and waited for the ride outside around 1.30 a.m. in the early hours of April 16th. She waited and she waited, but her ride still hadn't shown up. It was late, and... I guess the club manager or someone working for the club heard Felicia upset that the ride hadn't come, or maybe she told someone that her ride didn't show up. But according to this manager, a man supposedly offered to take Felicia to her hotel. And again, according to this witness, Felicia got into the man's car and they left. There's one more thing that piqued my interest about this conversation the PI had with the witness from the club. I guess the manager got warmed up and was feeling a little chummy with the PI, who, according to Quanell X, is a light-skinned Hispanic-looking man. He's not obviously Black, so the assumption is this encouraged the manager to speak more freely, if you will. Quanell X said that on that recording the PI had going, the manager is heard saying that he doesn't even know why Felicia would be at CoverGirls in the first place because they would never have hired her for the simple reason that they, quote, don't hire black girls, end quote. And this part kind of bounced around in my head for a bit and I couldn't quite put my finger on why at the time, but this will come up again when I talk about the club and the owners in more detail later. Now, all of this is exactly the type of information that the PI needs, right? You know, tracking Felicia down is the most important thing. And since the manager said that he saw Felicia get into a car, but of course, He wasn't able to offer any details about the car, at least nothing that has ever been reported in the press. 
when asked for details, I'm under the impression that they weren't able to provide anything. No one knows who the customer is. They don't have a description of him. They don't know anything about him. None of that. We have no additional information, but it's a start. As the PI is talking to the manager, he notices all the surveillance cameras around. And so he asks the obvious question of whether or not the club would be willing to turn over their surveillance footage so that they could see who Felicia might have left with or if anyone was behind her when she was in the club or whatever. And guess what? That's pretty much where the cooperation ends and begins with CoverGirls. They weren't going to be giving out any of their footage and no one really knows why. A lot of people have been asking the same question that I asked and it's basically, well, if this is the last place that she was ever seen, why wouldn't they want to give up the footage to be helpful? We haven't gotten an answer to that yet, but it's something to mull over. Over the next few days, the Johnson family did everything they could to garner attention for Felicia. Now that they had a little bit more info about what happened at the club, it was important to spread that information far and wide. Kevin got out in front of cameras almost immediately, sharing what the club staff told the PI, and he emphasized that CoverGirls was the last place Felicia was known to be at. Kevin's sister shared all the press activity in the Facebook group and word spread fast. When I joined the group, there were fewer than 500 people, not even a week later, and it more than doubled in size. Folks all over the country were talking about Felicia and sharing her story. Felicia's family used any and all available resources, especially those that are technological. Remember how Felicia's phone was being tracked? Well, by some miracle, her phone was still tracking and it led the private investigator to Bear Creek Park, which is about 12 minutes southwest of the CoverGirls Club. The PI found the phone in the grass not far from the road, like it had been tossed out of a moving vehicle. Finding the phone was such a huge lead in the case but it was bittersweet because it was also further proof that something really bad happened to Felicia. The phone was in working order and even had a full battery, but it was what was on the phone that was the most troubling. KENS5 CBS News described Felicia's phone as, quote, bloody, unquote, after Kevin and Quanell X staged a press conference outside of CoverGirls on April 20th. Quanell X described the condition of the phone as, quote, unquote, covered in blood. Now, if you're like me, you're probably cringing at these descriptions, and your mind's probably picturing the most exaggerated image ever, but Kevin later clarified, let me put you out of your misery, that this was a small amount of blood, like the amount you'd expect from a cut finger. However, regardless of the quantity of blood, the fact remained that blood was found on her tossed cell phone. Now, if you're thinking this is where the police finally entered the story, you're mistaken. When the PI located the phone, it was photographed and taken to HPD. The Johnson family expected this would be the discovery that surely would push the police into getting involved. And I mean, how could they not, right? Wrong. Even with actual evidence, 
the police still did not begin an investigation of their own until April 20th. In fact, according to what Kevin said at the press conference, the police actually refused the cell phone. Now, as mind-boggling as that is, thankfully, the Johnsons did have the support of Texas EquiSearch. If you don't know, Texas EquiSearch is a nonprofit search and recovery organization. They have been influential in many domestic and international searches for missing persons, including in the disappearance of specialist Vanessa Guillen out of Fort Hood, Texas. So these folks know what they're doing, and they pretty much got straight to work. Although I'm not sure what day the police actually mobilized, I do know that by the 20th, the day of this conference, they finally did have Felicia's phone in their possession, and they obtained security footage from the club the night Felicia was there. The phone was sent for analysis, and detectives would begin to review the surveillance footage. This is all great news, but honestly, this is not how it should have gone down. In the precious time between Felicia's disappearance and when police began investigating, a lot had happened and a lot could have happened. For starters, whatever happened, Felicia's situation isn't improving as time ticks by. Her situation remains the same until she's found, period. Two, the phone was sitting out in the open and handled by civilians, and basically that risks its viability in a future trial. And three, who knows what could have been done to that security video after Felicia went missing. Anyone with two twitching brain cells can figure out how to edit a video with an app from a phone. Now, I'm not saying that's what happened, but you get my drift. It's the lack of urgency and the danger it presented that Quanell X criticized to the press. He even said how Felicia's case is the fourth case of a missing black woman or girl he's been involved with in the last six months. He said he's noticed police are unhurried to launch investigations when the missing person is a black woman or girl. Now, clearly, this is not a good look for HPD. And to make matters worse between the Johnson family and the police, Kevin said the police were actually supposed to be at that very same press conference. But alas, they were nowhere to be seen. If ever the police's lack of support was noticeable in this case, it was at that moment. Hearing Felicia's dad say that he expected the police to be there and he was told they would be there only for them to not show up was really hurtful. And frankly, it's the blatant disrespect for me. So at this press conference, because I keep referencing it, but a lot kind of went down. And one of those things is that a woman stood by Quanell X and Kevin and waited her turn to speak at this conference. When it was her turn, she had a mouthful to say. Her name is Angela Williams, and she stated that she used to work for the owners of the Cover Girls Club, two brothers named Ali and Hassan Davari. And what she said she endured is not pretty. Angela said that she was sexually exploited, extorted, and constantly put in dangerous situations during the 10 years she was wrapped up with the Davari brothers. She stressed that these dudes are bad news and that all kinds of shady things go down inside their clubs, including, but not limited to, sex trafficking. 
And yes, the brothers own multiple adult entertainment clubs in Houston, Dallas, Las Vegas, and Canada too. But no matter where they go, their reputation precedes them. Actually, when they were getting ready to open their very first club in Vegas back in 2001, Steve Sevelius wrote a scathing piece in the review journal that spilled the tea on the Davari brothers' legal woes. According to that article, quote, the Houston strip joints collectively have earned thousands of dollars in fines and enough citations from the Houston police and the Texas Alcoholic Beverage Commission to wallpaper the MGM Grand twice for offenses including prostitution, public lewdness, selling booze to minors, and refusing inspections, end quote. So yeah, following the rules isn't in the card for these club owners and they basically backed up what Angela said. And Angela didn't stop there. She also said the Davaris are known throughout the club scene for being racist and refusing to hire black women to work inside their clubs. This is very reminiscent of what the manager said on that recording between him and the PI. Now, I don't know about you, but by this time in my research, the sex trafficking vibe was strong and everything seems to circle the cover girls club actually i think now is a good time to do a deeper dive into the club's background and to be honest there's so much to unpack about this club and its owners that it's hard to even know exactly where to start but i guess we'll go back to 2013 when the then mayor anise parker ushered in a deal so sweet that it's commonly known as the Sweet 16 Agreement or the Sweetheart Deal. This 40-page controversial arrangement was supposedly designed to help combat the ever-growing sex trafficking hub in Houston, but many critics see it as having the adverse effect. Prior to the Sweetheart Deal, Dancers and patrons of sex-oriented businesses had to adhere to the three-foot distance rule imposed by the city ordinances established in 1997. And I can see how a rule like that can be a big problem for business. So when Mayor Parker chose 16 strip clubs to essentially revert back to the rules prior to 1997, everyone wanted in. And because only 16 clubs were chosen, This is how the agreement earned one of its monikers. Now, while the 16 clubs do catch breaks that other clubs don't, they also have a laundry list of do's and don'ts that include, but aren't limited to, having to pay $800,000 plus 1.1% of their liquor sales per year. They also had to agree to improved lighting, so no more lurking in shadows in addition to having to agree to the removal of private and or VIP rooms. And this is a biggie. Literally, no obstruction by walls, curtains, blinds, none of that. And a whole other bunch of stuff that's on this list. I included the link to the agreement in the show notes. I found it on a blog page of the former two-time mayoral candidate, Bill King. He is not a fan of this Sweet 16 mess, and he's shown some light on the very shady side of this agreement. One of the things he criticized about the deal is the lack of enforcement. 
Instead of slowing sex trafficking down, the deal seems to empower a few to do more of what they are supposed to be helping to stop. Bill King stated that his team requested several documents from the city of Houston, only some of which were actually provided. Some of the documents requested that weren't provided were in an effort for Bill King's team to find out and confirm whether or not the city was enforcing the 40 pages of rules outside of the bare minimum. According to that blog, they could, quote, find no meaningful enforcement of these provisions, end quote. And while I personally haven't seen receipts that prove the city officials are doing their part, without full disclosure, it's really hard to be sure. Now, this agreement was supposed to be up in year 2020, but I couldn't find any updates about whether it had been extended or not. What I do know is that in June 2018, a strip club that had been excluded from the original agreement sued the city for discrimination and won. Now, it's the 17th club in the agreement. So, what does all this have to do with Felicia's story? Well, guess which club was among the lucky 16? Cover Girls. Now, I know the wheels are really spinning now in your mind, and you're probably theorizing. And you're not alone. Many people wondered if this sweet deal is why the police took five days to officially investigate this disappearance. And while I can understand why some people may wonder that, I think it's more along the lines of something else. Perhaps it has something to do with the fact that the Davaris throw their money around Houston's political pool. In October 2012, the brothers made a $25,000 donation to the Deputies Union Political Action Committee to support the campaign of Lewis Guthrie, who was running for sheriff at the time. Since 2017, the brothers have also made more than $25,000 in donations to the Harris County District Attorney, Kim Ogg. Now, this shouldn't need to be spelled out, but Obviously, it's problematic when the DA in charge of prosecuting violators of the law accepts large donations from lawbreakers. Couple this with the fact that the Davaris pay a lot of money to the Houston Police Department based on that sweet deal, and you can kind of begin to see why people are questioning things. So now that you have a little more background about the club and its owners, you can see why this whole investigation seems to circle them both. Something else that keeps coming up in this case about the club is that it's not lost on anyone that Felicia traveled all the way from California just to check out this club. A club that notoriously and boldly refuses to hire black women, has been sued many times for discrimination and wage violations, and not to mention the club is a whole 18 miles away from her hotel. In a city with strip joints everywhere, why choose cover girls of all places? I can't shake the feeling that maybe someone told Felicia about this club, wanting her to go there. I'm sure you can see where this is going, right? 
Lots of other people following this case have voiced their fears that Felicia was baited into going to cover girls in the first place by someone maybe involved in sex trafficking. Folks believe that this someone could even be a victim of sex trafficking herself and may have been coerced to lure other girls and women into sex slavery. As far-fetched as this sounds, it's actually an incredibly effective and often deployed method. You'd be surprised by how many girls and women are set up by so-called friends. So I think this whole theory is plausible, but there's been no public statement or announcement made by police confirming anything. But I have read stories online from women who say they danced in clubs in Houston and or have been caught up in trafficking at some point. And these women have seen other girls and women be lured to high profile clubs where they were then thrown into the trade. Some of these women have said that the clubs are often involved in the whole charade because it's obviously very lucrative. Okay, let's move forward to April 28th and the club finally made an official statement. Actually, it was their attorney, Casey Wallace. He sat down for an interview with a reporter from KHOU 11 Houston News, during which he said a lot of interesting things. But the long and short of it is, he denies the club's involvement in Felicia's disappearance. In fact, he said that when he reviewed the security video from the night of April 15th, he was unable to identify Felicia on the video, which is why he doesn't even believe she was ever at the club. He says that very plainly and clearly in this video. It's linked in the show notes. He went on to say that if she had been there looking for a job, she would have only come into contact with two people, the hostess and the night manager, and that's it. Casey Wallace did not say whether those two employees spoke to Felicia, but he did say that the police interviewed the two employees, so... I'm sure that if they interviewed them, they probably asked, did you see her? Did you speak to her? And just haven't released that out to the public yet. And I've mentioned multiple times throughout this episode that the police haven't said much of anything to the public, which we all get, right? Look at what a spectacle social media and podcasters and all these civilians running around doing all of these things. Look at what a mess it can make of an investigation. But despite their rocky beginning, the police are at least communicating with Kevin and he seems to be satisfied with whatever updates they've given him. Obviously, he can't divulge details without jeopardizing the integrity of the investigation. But in an interview for KHOU on May 13th, Kevin said police, quote, have identified her on the surveillance footage that that is her, end quote. And for your information, this is a direct contradiction to what the lawyer said he saw. But I'm not going to dwell on it because he said he didn't identify her, not that she wasn't identified. I get it. Lawyer speak, blah, blah, blah. Kevin also said that while the police do have a confirmed location of Felicia's last whereabouts, they won't confirm or deny that that place was cover girls which opens up a whole new can of worms that no one knows about but them. However, despite the lack of details, Kevin said his conversation with the police left him with a better understanding of what's happening in Felicia's case. And that is the most important thing. 
As of the date of this recording, Felicia Johnson is still missing and it's believed she is a victim of human trafficking. If Felicia was taken and thrust into slavery, the likelihood that she's still in Houston is slim. From what I've learned about sex trafficking, when victims are taken like Felicia was, they are rushed out of the area immediately. Now, considering how swiftly the Johnson family organized and how quickly Felicia's face was all over social media and the local news, it's possible the traffickers weren't able to leave as fast or as smoothly as they may have been accustomed to, and they might have stuck around Houston for a little while. There may be some motel, apartment, or house used as a safe house to lay low in for a short period of time. People listening in Houston, especially those in Southwest Houston, please keep your eyes peeled for anything that seems abnormal. Call to memory things that may have seemed out of place or strange the night of April 15th and thereafter. Maybe you noticed an uptick in the number of visitors coming and going from a particular neighbor's house. Or maybe you heard a struggle or screams that didn't sound like the -the run-of-the-mill domestic dispute. Anything could be the one thing that leads to finding Felicia. Also bear in mind that if they did get out of Houston, Felicia could be anywhere. I've read that those trafficked from Houston are often taken across state borders west into cities like Los Angeles and Las Vegas and east into cities like Miami. Of course, there are a thousand places between those cities that could also be at play, including, but not limited to, Atlanta and even cities in Mexico. Felicia literally could be anywhere, so it's important for everyone who's listening to stay vigilant. Her pictures are the cover picture for this episode, so you should be able to see her face on your phone right now. Commit that face to memory. At this point in the investigation, it's all hands on deck. From the new Black Panther Nation, Texas EquiSearch, and law enforcement, the search for Felicia is in full swing. Even the FBI joined the investigation, which could be a clue that perhaps Felicia was taken across state lines. But just like the Houston Police Department, the FBI hasn't made any public statements confirming or denying any theories. Crime Stoppers put up a $5,000 reward that is still up for information leading to Felicia, hoping it will incentivize someone with information to come forward. Felicia is described as 5 feet 4 inches tall, 150 pounds, brown skin, with brown eyes. She has long, straight, or curly dark colored hair, but her hairstyle may have changed. She has a large tattoo of roses and a butterfly on her right shoulder. The hope is that someone who knows something will come forward and say something. At this point, there's no lead that's too small or foolish or seemingly unhelpful. If you even think you might know something, please contact Crime Stoppers Houston at 713-222-TIPS or reach out to the Houston Police Department at 832-394-1840. And as a last resort, you also have Texas EquiSearch at 281-309-9500. 
I would like to take a second to give thanks to KHOU 11 News for all the coverage of Felicia's disappearance. This news station has been so diligent about keeping Felicia's story front and center, which is exactly what missing Black women and girls need. They made weekly, if not daily, updates about Felicia's case, and it is so appreciated. In closing, Felicia is one of the loves of her father's life. Kevin has described Felicia as being a beacon of light who lights up every room she enters. She's intelligent and sweet, the type of person who would give the shirt off her back to a person in need. She is someone who is dearly loved and incredibly missed by everyone in her family and circle of friends. Her father and family have made it their mission to find their beloved Felicia by any means necessary. And Kevin wants the people who took his baby to know that they messed with the wrong daughter and her father will stop at nothing to find her. As always, Thank you so much for listening. Honestly, every day I'm more and more amazed by the following this podcast has developed. While I know a lot of you are true crime junkies, I also know many of you want to help by making calls, writing letters, or volunteering your time or donating some money. And that means so much to me. Thank you. This is a Savvy Sounds production. Written and produced by Renetta Rideout.